Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm here today with Quinn Wills and Jack O'Meara, the co-founders of OkraBio. OkraBio is a biotech company that's developing RNA therapeutics and using an approach called deep phenomics that we're going to talk about today. Essentially, Jack and Quinn, they can give a much more complete answer than me, but essentially the aim is to use a combination of genome sequencing, single cell transcriptomics, other techniques, imaging, and, and other biomarkers to develop really sophisticated models of understanding biology and furthering drug development. They started with the liver and their aim is ultimately to be able to develop a completely in silico liver model. So what that means basically is a computer model that allows them to run experiments as if it were a real liver. And of course, what makes this attractive is you can do things that aren't possible in the real world and you you can also do things significantly faster and cheaper than needing to use organoid models, animal models, certainly, or having to do things in, in humans directly. So Jack Quinn, welcome to the podcast. And I'd really love if you guys could maybe just take me back to when you first met and decided to start OkraBio in the first place. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, really nice to, to meet you. I can certainly do that. Well, I guess it's, a, it's long ago and far away. We actually met. So Quinn and I connected. I've been working in biotech in the US for a number of years and was coming back to get closer to home to Ireland, where I'm originally from. But I took a detour and went over to Tanzania to work at an NGO that my friend runs out there. And I called Quinn because I'd read all about his profile and all his work. And I think we had a couple of messages exchanged. My first call was from a very remote middle of nowhere, Tanzanian town. And Quinn had just gotten back from building tree houses in the jungle in Costa Rica, which I think he's, he will tell much more about the company, but as a potential future retirement home, who knows where he's going with, with that one. We had this very kind of serendipitous and interesting first conversation where even though we both work in biotech and are enamored with advanced therapeutics, we spend most of the time talking about uh, our other interests <laughs> and our kindred spirits beyond the, the therapeutic space. So that's how we first connected and then very quickly met up in London and got kind of digging into our, each other's work. And uh, yeah, very quickly, Oka Bio was born. Tell us about the tree houses and, and what did Jack say to you on that first call? <laughs> it was an unusual one, Patrick, because, you know, I've hopped all around education-wise, academic-wise. I started my first liver genomics company before I was, well, done with my PhD. So I sort of, I don't want to say I'd seen and done it all because that, that's not true. But um, I definitely, I feel, had a good sense for where I wanted the science to go, where I felt the failings were. I just stepped down from a role as head of genomics at a big pharma there were two things on my mind. One was I was cautious about starting a company in Europe. And Jack and I can speak to some of that because we have some opinions on this topic. And so I basically went out, I spent a lot of time out in Costa Rica and went out to start building my dream tree house some jungle and funnily enough as one does as one does yeah you know (laughs) the struggle is real i actually went out to just part of setting it up was getting wi-fi up and going so we had this i built this whole solar powered wi-fi system for the jungle and one of the first call or messages that came in was from an accelerator in london called ef i was just deeply skeptical i was like oh i don't know a i mean again this is european it's going to be small money it's going to be all the european attitudes but agreed to have a call with with the guy uh, johnny at that stage and you know and he, he just made this very compelling argument for uh their philosophy on aside from money the next big thing that determines the success of a company are co-founders you know and and i've always i've always been a big believer in founder-led companies even in biotech biotech needs to learn this game a bit better that just really melded with me that was it i flew home thought of looking about and listening to what these guys had to say and yeah then got on a call with jack and as he says the rest is history 
logging into this expecting a biotech podcast. <laughs> They're going to learn about solar panels and uh, <laughs> the jungle. That's right. We'll we'll get there around minute thirty. We could so we could get to the biotech part. I was going to ask about the Wi-Fi setup and all that, but I I think we should we should hear about EF because uh, ultimately you guys did start the company, joined EF, and maybe you can share a little bit about how that process works because it's a little bit different than some other ways that startup companies are born. Maybe you could talk about how that came together and were you both, did you meet there or it sounds like you didn't, maybe Jack, you were yeah. um, thinking about it and, and managed to drag Quinn out of Costa Rica and, yeah, and back to London. Or whatever you could call that. Yeah. So maybe just for everyone's benefit, I can give you a bit of an overview of how we work some of the pieces. They call themselves a talent investor. And the idea being that a lot of the best founders are lost out there in the world and don't have the requisite either capital or ideas. Or, or, or opportunity to, to start companies. So they try and bring together what they call super talented people. I don't know if I classify myself as that, but anyway, that's their thesis. And essentially supercharge them and help them meet like complementary skill sets and people who can really put together the, the key ingredients to build a successful company. And I like to analogize it a bit to Love Island, but for startups, but I realize that type of commentary may get me in trouble with the EF founders. But they are a great program and they, and they put you through the ringer in terms of milestones, getting your kind of head together and what kind of business you want to build. And yeah, it really brought us together. I think that was the big, the big success for us was they released all the profiles a month ahead of the cohort. So we were already kind of very quickly honing in on each other, I think, before the program actually started. And then I think we, we officially got started before the program ever kicked off. And then just spent the time building and trying to source kind of the requisite seed funding to get up and running. That's interesting. So you actually saw each other's profiles and made the connection beforehand. They're like, uh, we could really stretch this dating analogy or Love Island analogy pretty far on this one, can't we? And how did the actual idea come about? So did you put on the sheet looking for someone with an interest in building in silico liver models and, and lightning struck or or how did that part actually come about? And I, and I know it evolved a little bit, I'd imagine in the early stage, like every company does, because you start with a hypothesis, but you've got to, you got to test that in the real world. So how did it actually start out? What was the kernel of insight or, or problem that you were both really interested in and, and how's it evolved from there? Well, it took a little bit of convincing. I had to convince Jack. I, I mean, I don't think, Jack, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I ever explicitly advertised that I'm doing liver science because the problem is people think, well, uh, you know, everybody wants to do neurodegeneration or the latest app for this, the latest app for that. And, you know, 99.9% of people don't realize that the only major global killer on the rise is chronic liver disease. It has, it's so analogous to lots of other chronic diseases like neurodegeneration that we're really struggling to find therapies for. So I, you know, I've been in the space for many years and just really love the know and, and don't like the fact that the whole value chain is failing. It's not just the discovery science, but the modeling and the, the clinical trials. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the first conference, because Jack was really keen on the aging aspect, but it took a bit of convincing. Thankfully, yeah, he came around to loving liver. <laughs> but I guess back on that point of like finding the right co-founder like that really does fundamentally change the trajectory of a company and i think that was as soon as we got talking and realized the state we had a lot of the same philosophies around business building and what we wanted to achieve with our short existence on this earth i think that very quickly um roped me into whatever wild idea quinn came up with for liver i was going to get on board with pretty quickly yeah that's great and and talk me through that wild idea and what it was at the beginning and also maybe dive a little bit more into the problem you mentioned it there but and we and we've had people talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and nash on the podcast a number of times it's kind of hard to understate what a what a global epidemic it is challenge it is and and also how little progress there's actually been in the last decade or so compared to many other diseases that have a comparable impact so maybe you could just talk for people who are not 
as familiar with it, what the scale of the problem is, and, and maybe the different problems at different stages of that whole chain that you just mentioned, Quinn. Yeah, happy to. I'll explain from the science point of view, and I'm sure Jack can pitch to the the bigger picture here. But from from a science point of view, there there are three big problems I feel you need to address if you're going to be serious as a, a serious liver therapeutics company. And the first is just new biology, right? There is very little understood around chronic liver disease. And that was what got me my job with this pharma company, setting up a whole new genomics department to use these technologies like single cell sequencing, spatial sequencing, to at a tissue level discover biology. Because, you know, as much as we all love genetics and genetics is doing great things for sort of de-risking targets in the drug discovery space, it very quickly can come unraveled in the chronic disease space because it doesn't answer the fundamental questions of which cell type isn't even in the organ that you're interested in. At what point in the 20, 30 year disease progression, especially during the silent years, is that gene or target relevant? So it's appealing to think, okay, this is a very big part of the problem that needs addressing. And it is. And we did a lot of that in my previous role. I think the, the thing is, you know, what next? And that's where we move on to the second bin or the second issue. And that is just modeling. You know, we've spoken about quite very quickly mentioned things, silico liver and all of that. But that all plays into this whole concept of what are the best models to really tease apart biology and, and establish mechanism of action. And to simplify it, mouse models don't predict what happens in humans. <laughs> it's as simple as that. After 20 years of mouse models, I've just given up. Mice are not humans, yeah. They don't predict chronic liver disease in any real way. And so it's very frustrating when you're in a pharma company, you and your team are coming up with targets that you're, you really have a strong conviction around. And then the absolute truth is, will a DVDB mouse <laughs> change? So there's that. And there's a second big part of that. And that's how this whole idea of just taking human livers and putting them on machines uh, came around. I mean, I know this sounds incredible, but this technology, this approach is becoming available now in the transplant world, you know, not just for livers, but for hearts, lungs, kidneys. And so the idea of just going direct to human experimentation, you know, if you can answer your questions in an isolated human organ that you can keep alive with blood and nutrients, why not, right? Because the thesis there is that that biology will still be better. I mean, no model's perfect, but will still be better than a mouse model. And it turns out it was, you know, we started doing this work in my previous role, and it was very obvious very quickly to the power behind these models. But in and of itself, that doesn't solve the third and final issue in the space. And that is that chronic liver disease, like a lot of cardiometabolic endpoints, are very difficult to do clinical trials around. It's a completely different game to cancer clinical trials. Very long-term endpoints, often unclear biomarkers of unclear relevance. Uh, you need huge amounts of patience for statistical significance. So just really, really messy. It doesn't help if you have, again, you can find new targets, you can do these atlases, you have correct models and, and slick ways of very quickly coming to the right conclusions or de-risking when you still have to go through a very conventional trial. And so the realization, and this is sort of when I started thinking, oh, maybe I need to wrap somebody into this as a separate spin out, was that there is enough overlap in the biology between what we're trying to solve in the transplant space versus what we're trying to solve in the chronic liver disease space. And so we could do transplant trials like you would do for any other orphan indication or rare genetic disease to really de-risk the final de-risking step before you need the hundreds of millions to go to very big NASH or chronic liver disease cirrhosis trials. And so, so that is really it. From a science point of view, that is the fundamental idea is to keep those three things going. And I'm sure Jack can fill in on some of it too. 
Yeah, I guess maybe not a whole lot to add. I think that was a pretty nice overview of how we're thinking about building the, the initial foundations from, of the company from a scientific perspective. I think the only thing I'd add is that commercially, one thing that we've seen with a lot of the gene therapy companies that are now coming uh, to the fore is that by focusing on an orphan indication or a rare genetic disease, oftentimes is the case, you can get to clinic quickly. You can run a tractable clinical trial that's not dramatically expensive like the like a NASH trial would be, and thereby de-risk the therapeutic platform or the drug discovery engine or whatever you want to call it, the portfolio ultimately of medicines that you're you're developing in internally, which allows you then to raise capital and fund more development, et cetera. So we're thinking a little bit like like that as a small biotech where we can run a trial in a in a in an orphan indication like transplant and use the clinical proof of concept and obviously do great work for transplant patients and for body liver disease more generally, but use that initial stepping stone so that we can raise our money and then invest in the wider portfolio of therapeutics, ultimately moving them close towards the clinic simultaneously and thereby de-risking and having a portfolio effect, which helps to sustain the company and ultimately get more medicines uh, into the clinic and for patients with various liver diseases. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys both for the overview. So in, in, to dive into the transplant aspect, I know you guys do a lot of work around RNA-based therapeutics. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the first application of the platform is in, in transplant and what you think. Uh, I know you're probably couple of years still from ultimately wanting to launch that these things take a significant amount of time to an and investment to get over the line but maybe you could tell me a little bit about that plan and transplant who's the target audience from a patient perspective and where do you see the need there and then what's the technology look like Maybe just to give you a sense for what's been a big challenge in transplant over the last couple of decades is that despite improvements in technology in, in a transplant setting, increasingly donor organ quality has been on the decline. Largely the result of fatty liver disease and more and more donor livers that come into centers having some level of steatosis or us all living longer as well doesn't help the donor pool. <laughs> so surgeons are increasingly having to use livers for transplant patients when, that they wouldn't have used 10 years ago that are on the kind of spectrum of, of uh, increasingly diseased. And that's really where we want to have an impact is in initially in pre-treating high risk, if you want to call it that, or marginal donor livers with a, an siRNA therapeutic that we've designed in our labs here in Oxford to improve outcomes for patients who receive these high risk donor livers. And the primary endpoint to ultimately improve for, for those patients is what's peak liver enzymes one week after transplant is a, is a surrogate biomarker for long-term graft survival. So we'll know we've made an impact if we can improve that, which is a relatively short endpoint. Quinn's piece on how clinical development is different in this space. But then also we want to follow those patients for a longer period of time to see if we have reduced recurrence rates of fatty liver disease or improved the broader cardiometabolic profile of these patients who receive a improved or pre-treated marginal liver as compared to a control group who receive a standard treatment. Anyway, we're, we're working through all of those pieces, but hope that gives you a little bit of a sense of what we're trying to achieve with our first program. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you make the discovery in the first place and how to treat these organs? Maybe you could go into, maybe you can go into a little bit of the deep phenomics aspect and and all, and the wealth of different data types. Quinn, you alluded to it earlier that it's not just genomics, but you've got to really understand what's going on at a tissue level. Talk me through how you reverse engineer from, we've got an unhealthy liver that we need to understand exactly what's going on and, and reverse engineer what can we add to the mix to take it backwards in time or, or reverse its disease course so that we can make it healthier than it is today when it goes ultimately into a patient that might receive that liver. Mm, sure. Let, let me start with the, the modality. You briefly mentioned RNA uh, therapeutics. I'll start with the modality and why we like it and then work back from there to the data and how how we get the actionable data we generate to get us to this. So we are... Fundamentally, uh, as it stands, uh, an RA therapy company, a therapeutics company, and we like 
uh, RNA therapeutics, particularly a version called Galnac sRNA. So this is a gene silencing modality that has uh, Galnac sugar on the end, making it a parasite specific. And it's our prototype. It won't be our only approach, but it's, it's a very successful, very good approach. And we like it for three reasons. You know, the first is the speed with which you go from target to therapy. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of years and sure, from a clinical point of view, uh, you know, this will be a, a this is a multi-year strategy here. But from moving quickly from a target point of view, it's a whole different game. You know, we've already synthesized at gram level several lead oligos since we opened up our Oxford lab in June last year that we are now beginning to use in human livers and generate sort of human preclinical data on. So it's, a, it's very fast and we love that. It's very cell specific and we love that. That's very important because ultimately really why cirrhosis, the endpoint for so much chronic liver disease is such a challenge is that it is a very multicellular disease and you need to tweak very specific biological levers within very specific cells. Now, small molecules, as far as I'm concerned, are never going to do the trick. They will gently shine here and there, but not fundamentally solve the problem. And so we like that. And we like being on this trajectory of being able to tweak very specific genes in very specific cell types. And then from a clinical point of view, they are long acting. I think a lot of folks don't appreciate this. These gal, these sort of highly modified sRNAs we use last for six plus months in effect with a single dose. So we can do a single ex vivo dose in these clinical trials. So dose of liver while it's on a machine being assessed before being transplanted, yet we can follow up the endpoints that Jack was talking about over many, many months. So we love that. Knowing that we love that as a good starting point for a modality, what is the actionable data? And so conveniently for those of us in, we've been spending many years in, in RNA, of course, RNA is going to be the actionable data. And for us, it's at doing the kind of stuff that we love to do. RNA at single cell resolution, RNA at spatial resolution, and RNA at temporal resolution, because we study livers on machines over time. But it's not the only data type, right? So it's very important, for example, to have very good histology. At the end of the day, NASH, if we're talking NASH, you've spoken about NASH, NASH is defined histologically. So we have to speak to histological endpoints. So we have to do imaging machine learning to standardize what we do. You know, we've uh, sequenced over a thousand livers. We need to standardize that, extract human interpretable features and non-human interpretable features to do that. And then of course, there's just no substitute for having great clinical endpoints. And so, you know, having data sets, huge, you know, large data sets where you have 150, 200 clinical phenotypes as we have is incredibly powerful for building up this sort of multi-scale model of this is what's happening at a molecular level. This is what's happening at a tissue level. This is how it maps to all the clinical endpoints. I think a couple of pieces just really clicked into place for me. And I can also think I see where you guys are going long-term with this after a few minutes here of, of just hearing you break it down so systematically. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to try to play it back to you. Basically, step one is if you can really understand when you receive a, a liver that's maybe not fit for transplant, it's cirrhotic or, or has other issues with it. Yeah, high-risk liver. There's two things you can do there. First is you can profile that liver and understand what's different about this liver on a real kind of granular level across all those levels you mentioned. So understand what are the, at the RNA level and, and histological level, how's that different from a liver we'd be more comfortable translating. Step two is if you can insert RNA therapeutics, you know, small RNAs to walk that back along its cellular trajectory towards a slightly healthier state. It's almost like a fine tuning or an orchestra here that you're playing, that you're, you're trying to rewind that liver back in time. But the interesting kind of step two, three, four that I think you guys have in mind that makes a lot of sense to me is if you can do that 
in that context, you could probably do that in the body as well and much earlier stage, right? So then step two is you find a patient who's not doesn't need a liver transplant yet and that liver hasn't left their body and you can play that same orchestra and and fine tuning to make sure they never get to that cirrhotic state for example is that kind of more or less the two-step plan bang on <laughs> i love the orchestra analogy as well it's all yours I'm, I'm sure i took it from somewhere else that makes a lot of sense and and i really like it maybe we can dive a little bit more into how you understand all those moving parts at a cellular level to begin with because as you mentioned quinn it's a really complex process that involves genetics environment everything else what do we know today about the processes that go on that drive a liver from being healthy to unhealthy over 20, 30, 40 years? Oh, you're going to start getting all of Quinn's favorite theories, which is dangerous to do at this stage in a company because, of course, inevitably the ones that we go to market with won't be my favorite theories. But let me first start by answering a little bit about, the again, the process and how we think about this, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about the biology. I think one thing, and, and you won't only hear this from us, that it's becoming increasingly vogue to speak like this, you've got to find the right balance between computation and experimentation. You know, we are... We do both all the time. We sequence all the way through our pipeline. So when we're sequencing, like I mentioned, we, we've sequenced over 1,000 human livers at very high resolution and detail. We work, our mechanism action lab, our target validation lab, works in primary tissues and does a lot of traditional workups, but we still sequence everything all the way through and we're still sequencing when we go to fuse livers. So we are building up big computational models. But at the same time, this is always very human-centric and really involves a lot of biology. So finding that right balance is, is very much the motivation behind teasing apart the right biologies. Um, and even the, the in silico liver, again, that sort of, well, I'm sure we'll get to chat about in a little bit, has come up a few times, is driven by this thinking of how do we find the right balance? We want to be able to screen every subphenotype in the liver, but there are only so many livers in the world. How do we get computation to support that, right? So Knowing that, uh, in terms of how we think, what is tractable and what we can do, uh, you know, we've broken down uh, liver biology into three big buckets. And, and this won't shock anyone. It, it largely overlaps with how others think about liver disease. But the first is as a metabolic machine. So not just steatosis. It's, you know, it's not just insulin resistance. It's about the whole somatotropic axis in the liver and nutrient sensing and all those important nutrient sensing pathways that go haywire as you get older which is why you tend to see this stuff as we get older. So there's all of that. So we're not just defatting livers. There, there's a bigger game here that we're playing to in, this, in the liver space. And that is very tractable with everything we've set up to do right now. The second big uh, area of biology is just how is cell state biology is, is how hepatocytes die, don't die. You know, hepatocytes in chronic liver disease and transplant, they have so many fates. It's not just senescence or apoptosis or necrosis. It's necroptosis, pyroptosis, ferroptosis. And, it, and it's just, it's incredible that the myriad of cell states that these cells can go into under stressful conditions. And this is why Frankly, for example, just chucking caspase inhibitors into the mix to reduce liver cirrhosis, it's not working very well because you're just helping the cells decide on another fate, which may be equally or even, even more bad. So thinking around cell states and how to guide cell states in different directions, you know, is very much how a lot of us think in the single cell space anyway. So that is, that is another big area of biology. Right now, mostly on hepatocytes, but watch the space. And then the third big area of biology, which we are now beginning to set up for is, you know, sort of the regenerative theme. You know, again, in chronic liver disease, we talk about inflammation biology, fibrosis biology, 
is regenerative medicine. That's what this is. is you know, is that is that healing, scarring process that happens that eventually makes a cirrhotic liver uh, that plays out over years and years. And how can we tweak it? How can we study it? How can we model it computationally? And so again, to bring this all the way back into balancing computation experimentation, we've ha- really had to think about how do we plausibly model a cirrhotic liver? Can we measure enough cirrhotic liver biology on a, in a cirrhotic liver over multiple days on a machine, for example? So it's all of that playing out and we'll, um, we'll hopefully have a few announcements sometime next year. Maybe we could actually talk about how you guys have gone from idea stage to you know raising money to to build a team and really start to validate some of these early hypotheses. But there's obviously a very large vision and long way to go. And as as I think, Jack, you said early in the conversation, you all are not the typical biotech startup founders. For better or for worse, most biotech companies are founded by industry veterans who've been developing drugs for 30, 40 years by the time they decide to go do it themselves. But there are a, a, a core of companies like yourselves that are led by a very different group of people who may not have as many years of experience directly in drug development, but have really deep experience in technology and thinking about new business models and those sorts of things. Maybe a question for you, Jack, is how do you think about how you stage your journey because you all, unfortunately, I think don't have the luxury where you can just go and ask for hundreds of millions of dollars because you've developed multiple drugs before. You've got to take a slightly leaner approach. How do you think about staging that from a company perspective about what you do first and, and those stepping stones towards that big future? I think it's a great question. I guess probably spent an hour on it, um, but maybe I could try and comment that something that would be useful. I think the first thing is we were very intentional about who we raised money from. So there are kind of an increasing number. I think it's still relatively small given in the context of the overall biopharma financing industry. But there are folks who who do believe in this model of founder-led biotech, which is, again, not traditional. A lot of biotech VC is kind of incubated and and groomed, as it were, for the role. So I I think that was something we were quite intentional about. And one of the reasons why we left London and flew to California to do a lot of our, our seed fundraising. I think the other thing that any investor gets excited about is results and ability to execute quickly. And that's something... Again, was within the first eight months of us being financed and having a company, we were able to build the largest genomic atlas of the human liver today and talk about having actually executed on what we set out to do and, and committed to do and, and did it at record pace. So I think that's been another big piece of it. And I think increasingly now there are more and more companies that look a little bit like us. And I, and I that's like part of the reason why I'm kind of keep dragging Quinn into doing some of this media stuff like today is that, you know, you need to hear the story. You need to get out there and start banging the drum about a different model that ultimately we hope will progress more medicines to the clinic and ultimately get to patients. So we've been, um, I think, quietly coming up with some ideas for what we're going to do over the next couple of years now that we have the foundations in place and we have some initial results to point to. And then the last thing I'll say is just that you don't know what you don't know. So surrounding ourselves with people who have the 30 years experience in industry is very important and something we we lean on a lot of just very incredible advisors who are around the company who help us think through some of the challenging questions. We also use a lot of excellent consultants for specific roles, be it around corporate strategy or IP, et cetera to make sure that we are not tripping ourselves up long-term and have the best minds around the table. I think that's been something we've been very focused on on making sure as we set out to, to build a company. But Quinn, I know you've got strong opinions on this as well. Any, anything coming to mind you'd like to, to share? You hit it bang on. I don't believe we're a biotech company. I know Jack likes to talk about us as a tech bio company. Uh, I've heard of folks talking about uh, sort of deep tech and this is this sounds a little lot like deep tech. I've never really understood the definitions of half these things, like particularly deep tech. What, what is deep tech? It just sounds like science to me. We're a science company. We've, we've figured out how to bring together technologies, 
with a with an idea on really wanting to meaningfully make therapies and when you when you have when you're spinning plates like that i just go with the data and the data very strongly suggests that the best model is founder-led companies and that's what we're trying to do here i know you guys have been running your own show and or at least we're on clubhouse the other day with ethan Perlstein, right? Talking about this very concept. How how did that come about? And I'd love to hear more about this core of founder-led biotech companies and what are the, especially what are the advantages that uh, groups like you all have over the existing model? And and I know Ethan has been shouting from the rooftops about different ways of doing drug development and in particular going very granularly down to the motivated patient level to give them the tools to on the ultra rare disease level. Love to hear more about that. And maybe you could give a plug for the clubhouse show if you guys are, uh, are doing it fairly regularly. Oh, that that's Jack baby. Go on, Jack. Uh, well, first, I'd say uh, a huge, huge fan of Ethan. I think he's just an inspiring character and massively driven and doing great things for the world and incredible moral and ethical compass. That I think we, we really deeply admire. And he's an investor in us. So I guess I should probably flout that as well. Um, <laughs> the other thing I'd say is, yeah, Clubhouse, join us Sundays, 1 p.m. EST, 6 p.m. UK. We do interviews like this with other biotech founders, hear a little bit about their story. I do have a slight uh, bias, but not well, not necessarily the case, but slight bias towards folks who are kind of doing this founder-led model and, and trying to prove it out. And, and some of the people I think I, I really admire in the field who are, who are doing that is, I think Trevor Martin is a fantastic CEO and founder of Mammoth Biosciences. I think uh, Nabia Satline, who does the show with me, and Salino is another just rock star in the field. And, and then, uh, of course, there's many, many more. I won't go on and on and on. But I think it, it's an interesting model. And I guess to answer your question about what are the advantages, I can kind of straight off the bat tell you what some of the disadvantages are, some of the things where we're not advantaged. And that's just like pure play, drug, buying in IP and just development. I think that's not our, our strongs, but I think where companies like ourselves really flourish through this founder-led model is on the edges or the innovations of new technologies that converge to really give you a differentiated approach in a really competitive space. I think that, and you've seen it in tech, right? I, I mean, not that tech is a great analogy for biotech, such a different uh, industry and regulatory and, and ultimately patient-centric space. Um, but a lot of these really new, innovative technology companies really flourish from the people who know the science or are closest to the technology and really understand what we're trying to bring together are in the helm and really driving deep innovation. And then it also allows you to think kind of creatively. And I guess this is more my role on the business development side. It's like, how do you think about novel business models that suit this really deep, innovative science? Like, you know, this whole hub and spoke model is quite interesting or setting up the business model such that you can bring in the clinical development experts when you need them or for very focused programs or, or thinking about creative ways as we move closer and closer to clinical and commercial organization. But definitely for where we're at now in terms of co coalescing a lot of really interesting R&D, I think we're right at the front of it. But Quinn, you might have some additional comments. I'll say one or two things because <laughs> you, I know you, Jack, you and I can talk for hours on this topic, personal passion. But I think at the end of the day, I don't like to use the word disruptive either because, you know, what, what does that mean? But if you are trying to achieve a step change in your field, you need to be able to join the dots. And if you don't have the dots, you can't join them. And, and that's the problem with parachuting people in rather than having founder-led companies. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it. And, and also, you, I've got to imagine that there's a tendency to be a little bit reactive and behind the curve, especially when very new technology paradigms come across. Occasionally, there are exceptional people who can kind of break out of that paradigm that they might have been in for for their entire life. But more often than not, probably it's it's really hard to think truly outside the box if you've been in the field for too long. We'll go with that for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
I we're running up on time here. I did want to just circle back to the in silico liver and, and hear a little bit more about that because it sounds like that's a big kind of piece of the puzzle in the in the next couple of years. I can say the very first research lab I worked in was a wind tunnel and I thought it was going to be fun, but it was actually ended up being really boring. I was watching leaves flap in this wind tunnel and measuring something. The second lab I worked in, which I really enjoyed, was a uh, we were building a computational model of um, of the mitotic spindle, which anyone who does cell biology, it's the thing that helps cells kind of split apart. But what was really powerful about that is it was right next to a wet lab where we could build the model and then they could actually test the model's predictions in the lab. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the in silico liver. And, and I noticed on your website, you've got some people say wet lab on their title, some say dry lab and some say no lab, which I thought was very nice. I think, Jack, maybe you're you're one of the no lab crew. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about that setup and, and the power between having those two pieces under one roof. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit to the wet lab, dry lab mix, and then I'll, uh, I'll briefly mention the in silico liver and, and why. So the wet lab, dry lab thing, it's a tough game. I'm sure you know this as well as we do. It's a very tough game to get right. I think one thing that I've come to learn over the years is the whole idea of putting wet lab scientists and dry lab scientists into the same space and hope magic happens is generally not a good idea. Again, it's joining the dots. You need to have enough people with the dot join that. And so, you know, we do focus on having individual you know, some people are more wet lab, some people are more dry lab, but also having individuals who can do both. So that, you know, that process happens in a better way. It doesn't guarantee it, but it helps a lot. So yes, we do focus on a lot of that. And part of that, we do think about things like the in silico liver. Now, you know, people have been wanting to build in silico organs for since, since computation began in earnest in our space. I think for me, one thing had to happen, and that was we had to be doing biology at the fundamental unit of life. So until single cell sequencing kicked in, uh, the technology we have now, what is it we're really doing in the space? So now that we can do this, and now that we can do this on all livers that we keep alive on machines, what do we do with it? Do we want an all singing, all dancing, or do we want something that really uh, augments what we do exper experimentally? And that's what we've gone for as a company you know we want to again this is not to discredit some of the sort of biology at scale companies out there that are using huge robotics but we just feel for our space the big compromise is complexity and we don't want to compromise that you do need to understand complexity and so what we're doing with this in silico lever with with all this data that we're generating in oxford taipei and our fusion centers at some stage next year we predict that they're particularly the single cell sequencing data will be large enough and powerful enough to start making good predictions about genes before we've tested them so that means we don't have to every time there's a new phenotype like maybe we want to study senescence we don't have to now get 30,000 livers and screen each one of them with a gene and measure the phenotype uh, we can test a couple, put it into the model, and the model will tell us which are the next ones we need to be looking for. So that's the basic idea. And again, it comes back to this balance. Yeah, and there's a really powerful flywheel there, right? Because you can then do hundreds of thousands, millions of livers in a totally software experiment, right? And, and test it in the real world on a couple and, and make sure you're on the right track. Jack, were you going to add something to that? Oh, I think that was a really nice, uh, nice summary of where we're hoping to get to. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Maybe last question here, I'd love to hear from both of you all just before we close out is if you're successful at OkraBio, let's assume everything goes your way over the next two decades. I know it's a long way out and I won't hold you to this, but what does the world look like? What's different? Uh, Quinn, maybe you're retired in your treehouse and you've got Starlink uh, beaming, beaming you, <laughs> nice high quality Wi-Fi, but I assume that wasn't live when you were down there, but uh, maybe it was. I'd, I'd love to hear what, what how's the world different in in 20 years, if you guys are successful. I think one of the things we 
think about internally a little bit, and I'm careful how to articulate this, not to get myself in trouble, but is this idea, I guess you could call it preventative medicine or health span, but ultimately therapeutics that help people stay healthier longer and the liver being the brain of the metabolism, if you want to call it that, is a great place to start thinking about broader systemic health and modulating potentially cardiometabolic health, et cetera, such that we can ultimately aspire towards a different type of medicine that's less sick care and responding to cirrhosis per se, but ultimately bringing therapeutics to help us never reach that point and stay in a, in a healthier state for longer. Uh, that's exactly it for us. It's this problem of, or the challenge of, you know, in the UK, for example, one in six women born now can expect to live to 100. What does society look like where we should all expect to be 100 healthy 100-year-olds? Because the current paradigm of preventative health, where it's just, you know, eat less, move more, not really doing great. So where does that go? And we do think liver is a very big part of that. 100% with you. Well, thank you guys both. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is one of the favorite conversations I've ever had. It was great to hear about your founding story in particular at the beginning. Sounds like you guys were a match made in heaven from the get-go. Thank, thank you. you this is really fun. And thanks everyone for listening. As always, please share with a friend if you like the episode. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast player so other people can find us. And we'll see you next time.